You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Mickey. <laughs> Mickey, for our listening audience, why don't you tell us what that sound was? Oh, whoa, that is no low-tech parrot you're wielding. Oh, whoa, that is no low-tech parrot you're wielding. <laughs> I gotta <laughs> say, <laughs> you've outdone yourself. Mickey, you've outdone yourself. Okay, put a lid on it, bird. <laughs> um. For those of you who are just listening to this, that was a giant stuffed parrot whose specialty is apparently repeating whatever is said in a slightly altered tone of voice. Now it's going to repeat what I say. Now it's going to repeat what I say. Mickey, I think within moments the, this gag may get old, but persist Hi, as Bob. long as you would like. Hi, Bob. <laughs> uh, don't be so sure. It may, uh, it may, uh, come in handy in later segments. Come in handy in later segments. Well, it cuts down on the amount of work we have to do by exactly 50%. No, I figure that, um, for my impending, you know, Senate campaign. Oh, you mean Kamala? Are you going for, you're Kamala going for Kamala's Kamala seat? Kamala seat? I, yeah, need totally. a, I need a surrogate because I, I, I feel that the problem last time wasn't my ideas or personality. It was, a failure of communication, Bob. So, I what think we had here was a failure to communicate. Correct. Well, you got that problem solved. I'm a little <laughs> insulted that you didn't ask me to be your surrogate. But speaking of parrots, Mickey, I think before we go further, we should thank the many viewers and/or listeners who immediately after the unveiling of the parrot room, the the Patreon parrot room page last week committed their hard-earned wages to support the cause of uh, of reckless pronouncement that's our cause um yes. and uh and 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 as well gained gained access to the parrot room mm-hmm. although i doubt that was the primary yes. modification i think yes. it was largely yeah. altruistic thank you patrons <laughs> now i don't think we should give that away for free see i think they should have had to pay for that that'll should, be more of it that later parrot is going into the parrot room and not coming out, folks. Be, I hope you enjoyed that one mo- visit. There'll be there'll be more of it later. Um, uh, no, we're off to a good start. Uh, hundreds, hundreds of people. Despite, yeah, despite, and we'll have more to say at the end of this podcast yeah. about that. But, but, did you want so to say something you. else now? Thank no, you. No, no. So far, so good. Despite some glitches. initial glitches, we'll talk about those. But. Uh, but yeah, but no, thank you. And it's, it's only all, five bucks. It's all good. Um, anyway, so co- what do you want to talk about? Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, we can, should we talk, uh, COVID or, you Let's know, take I, Kamala first. Kamala then COVID? Yeah. Okay. What's your take uh, on Kamala? Well, I, I see her as sort of like Faye Dunaway, you know, Faye Dunaway is a, it's probably insulting to Faye Dunaway. But Faye Dunaway is a great actress. Not as insulting as what you said last week, but we'll get back to that. What I say, people said I made face Kamala, Kamala Harris. You made fun of her. Last yeah, that was. I was going to read that commenter's. Uh, but I remark. didn't. I don't remember doing that. Did I do that? 
Anyway. You were you were you were uh, saying that she had had plastic surgery, inciting what you saw as evidence. Well, whatever she had, it's working. She looks great. Um, <laughs> the uh, the uh, so the Faye Dunaway. I have she's a great actress. I have no clear impression of her. She doesn't play the same character every time. I couldn't really tell you what she looks like. She's in Chinatown. She's in Mommy Dearest. She's great, but she's got this sort of amorphous look to her, and. Kamala is that way politically, not physically. I know what she looks like. Politically, she's sort of all over the lot, and I don't have a clear identity. I mean, Elizabeth Warren gives her stump speech. You know who she is. She is a nerdy academic from Harvard who has a Naderite desire to bring corporations to heal. It's a very limited vision. It's not an expansive vision of social justice. It's sort of law school-y and Naderite, but it's you know who she is. There's no doubt in your mind who you're voting for, and you're comfortable with it because you know who she, you're voting for. Kamala is just sort of an empty vessel of ambition that you sort of don't know what is, why is she running? What does she want to do in the world aside from the fact that it's the top job? So we have two candidates, Biden and Harris, who don't really want to run for president to do anything just because they think they can do a good job. And it's the top job, and they're ambitious. Uh, so, uh, and Kamala is worse than Biden, because Biden mm-hmm. at least has accrued some causes over the last 20 years. Uh, so my basic take is is she's ruthlessly ambitious, and what the hell has she done? And there's a, there's a at least a 50% possibility that voters won't like her. What's the other evidence that she's ruthlessly ambitious, aside from her takedown of her friend joe biden in that debate oh i mean there's a piece there's a piece in politico where where you know it talks about how she you know how she rose in san francisco politics which is pretty ruthless in terms of she ran against her old boss she you know you know attacked him viciously in a debate she i mean she you know in what is uh, happen politics ain't beanbag yeah but i mean she has a pretty meteoric rise she's been in the senate for like a week and a half so did barack obama Uh, but would you say he had no ideological core no he did have an ideological core and he had a he had a selling proposition which is that great speech he gave in uh the, the convention at the convention at the Kerry convention where he said there's no red america and blue america uh, and that's what sold him to the American people. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book sort of saying what he wanted to do. And, uh, and they had given him some legislative achievements to build his career. I mean, maybe it was, it was a gift from the, the local state legislators, but he had shepherded some bills through, uh, the yeah. Illinois legislature. So, um, you know, that's, that's something. It's not so- nothing. So are her two big things, she has been state attorney general and then senator for like two or three years. That's no, she kind was of a district attorney, state before. attorney general, uh-huh. uh, and then senator. But very little experience in in legislative uh, politics. Correct. Um, uh, um, okay. So, uh, well, but I, Biden I, has huge experience, so that's not yeah. a defect in the ticket. Well, they'll be surrounded by experience compared to the Trump administration. They'll they, be staffed uh, with experience. But... I, I highly recommend this political article, which I just, which Josh Barrow turned me on to today about how, why the Obama people disdained Biden, uh, and even sort of to this day disdain Biden. What's, and, what's, and why he passed over Biden and Obama in, in sort of anointing Hillary as his successor and discouraging Biden from running. 
What's the short well, answer to why they didn't like Biden? Well, he's not an intellectual. He's not a technocrat. He doesn't come up with the right policy. He's a he's an unguided missile and a schmoozer, and uh, uh, and they are technocrats. And yeah. and the piece effectively makes the point that which I think the Obama people probably realize is that they needed a schmoozer. That Obama was a terrible legislative salesman, and Biden is a people person. He has those virtues, uh, but. Uh, uh, you know, he's not as smart as he thinks he is, and he's not as smart as the Obama people. So the Obama people look down their nose at him, and and he uh, he repays the favor. I mean, I don't think the Pod Pod Save America people are in for huge love from the Biden camp. Uh, they're Obama people and Hillary that's, people. That's an interesting point. Well, they were, you know, as I said, a couple of them were implicitly anti-Kamala, although, of course, they're singing your praises now, but they made the explicit case for Susan Rice back when that was still in play. So speaking of both Kamala and Obama, uh, has Trump already gone birther on us with Kamala? I mean... <laughs> that was bizarre. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, under those criteria, I couldn't run for president. Well, not only that, but did you uh, hear you know, what Trump said? Child I mean, of immigrants. No, there's two issues. There's there's the fact that some lawyer somewhere is raising questions about the fact that although she was born in America, neither of her um, parents were citizens at the time, even though in general natural-born citizen has been taken to mean that just that you were born if you're born in the oh, U.S. I didn't realize citizen, that. Right? So she's, they're making the anchor baby case. Okay. They are making that, but the way Trump put it is what's bizarre uh, well, maybe not for Trump, but here's what he said. I'm just, I didn't see it, but I'm reading this from a, a news account. He said in some, I guess, press conference to some reporter, he said, I just heard today that she doesn't meet the requirements. And by the way, the lawyer that wrote that piece is a very highly qualified, very talented lawyer. Yeah, I always trust Donald Trump to, Who wrote to like the piece? evaluate lawyers for me. Um, this piece, it yeah, was, the news. this was in the BBC, <laughs> I think. Oh. Uh, the, um, l- the- wait, let me finish the quote. It gets amazing. He says, okay. I have no idea if that's right. I would have assumed the Democrats would have checked that out before she gets chosen to run for vice president. Here's the, here's the good part. But that's a very serious. You're saying that they're saying that she doesn't qualify because she wasn't born in this country. No, that's not the case. I mean, he, this is flat out birtherism. We all know Wait, she was born he, in this he, country. He said she wasn't born in the country. He's, he's kind of saying, oh, so you're saying yeah. that they're saying that you're saying that they're saying, you know, distancing yeah. himself yeah. from it. But the same now I understand old the, shit. The, the argument is that her parents, unlike my parents, were citizens at right. the time of her birth. Right. And, and, and so, but under that theory, there is, there is a, 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 a there is a credible, possibly losing, but worth a Supreme Court case argument that, uh, that the doctrine that if you're born in the country, your automatic citizen is not, in fact, what the Constitution means. But the consensus uh, view is that it does mean that, right? Well, yeah, and, but the consensus view is is wrong on a lot of things. It does, yeah, it, but it, no it, less it, a... It, there's no controlling Supreme Court precedent. It's sort of, it's a footnote in a Justice Brennan opinion or something. But no it's less not. a conservative legal scholar than Eugene Volokh has weighed in on exactly this case and written a very considered piece about this saying that this is bullshit and she's a citizen. You respect, you respect Eugene Volokh, surely. I respect Eugene Volokh. I don't follow him slavishly. Well, I recommend it in this case. But, um, uh, he's a very, very smart man. The, um, uh, I guess the question is, um, sort of nobody is questioning she's a citizen. So once you accept that. That's what they're questioning. Or are they questioning whether she can run for president? Well, that, that's the bottom line. But I thought that was by citizen. way of, que- yeah. of of 
look, she was definitely natural born. If they're conceding she's a citizen, then she's a natural born citizen. I mean, I don't know. But this is well, no, natural- this will probably go away. Yeah. I just couldn't believe that Trump. It's more complicated than I'd realized. Oh, but- Mickey, please don't give aid and comfort to birtherism. To, to uh, quasi birth. They're not saying she was born outside the well, geographic confines of the United States. My main point is that Trump took the occasion to give give uh, wings to that crazy, unfounded claim, and mm. and he, he justifies. It, which brings us back to Kamala, because it's like, no, I'm not a Kamala fan. I'm not a Biden fan. But to me, this guy is an existential threat. I we just got to get him out of office and. Uh, you know, I could go on Why about my reservations about Kamala, but I mean, Byron York had a pretty good piece about how he's obeyed every court order that's been handed to him, sort of slavishly. Uh, he, was you know, tweeting is not an existential threat. Disobeying the courts is an existential threat. He hasn't done that. He, uh, he, there, there have been a few signs of autocracy, but really not that many. Just the destabilizing shit he pulls. He's destabilizing. I, mean, I agree with you that. You know, last week TikTok, this week who knows what. Uh, well, the post I, office is a much bigger deal than. Well, TikTok. that I was going to bring that up. So he is. Here's the way the Washington Post put it: President Trump on Thursday said he opposes both election aid for states and an emergency bailout for the U.S. Postal Service because he wants to restrict how many Americans can vote by mail putting at risk the nation's ability to administer the November 3rd elections. Now, is is it true that he's saying, I want to re- I don't want to give the post office support because I want to reduce the number of people who vote by mail? I think the the charitable explanation is he wants to discourage states from adopting, you know, universal vote by mail schemes where they send a ballot to everybody. Uh, and, and, and if he could, if, if it were six months ago and he said, look, there's not going to be the money to deliver them, you shouldn't do this, he might dissuade some of them and then it would make sense. But it seems way too late for that now. I mean, at, th- at this point, the states are sort of committed to how they're going to run the election. Uh, it just and, seems. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, he, he's just giving, he should fund, he should fund it and take away the excuse that, the, if the elections are a disaster, that they are a disaster because he didn't fund it. Right, uh, which is now a real peril for him, don't you think? Politically. I mean, I mean, as we get well, to the, as we approach the election day and things are looking like a shit show, this is, he's given the Democrats a strong card to play here, right? Well, it's a post-election card. I mean, it's, 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 it's. Well, I think the shit it, show. It, part it will, will only be, be obvious it's a shit show the day after the election, right? No, I think if you're hearing people say, Oh, the post office is whatever, you know, signs of snafu that he can be blamed it, for he, will be it, seized on. It doesn't seem like he's a force for order. And you would think he would be positioning himself with all the riots and the looting and the crime as as a force for order. Now, that's a good question. You know, the uh, uh, the, the the Bannon crowd, uh, you know, I, I to make sure I'm not. In an echo chamber, I, I always try to either watch Fox News or listen to the Steve Bannon podcast. Um, they are like, and, and they often have been a hint of things to come in Trump campaign themes. China's a good example. Um, and they are just going all out on, on Portland. Of course, last week, Chicago got hit with, uh, you know, looting, uh, along the Miracle Mile, but, but they're, they're calling for Antifa to be deemed a terrorist group. Uh, which, which would mean that, you know, if you give material support to Antifa, uh, 
you're a criminal, I guess, and material support. The, the Trump, the Trump administration, I think, would like to define material support as like letting people say things on Facebook. I mean, uh, the, the, so, I mean, no, it may not happen, but you should hear them go on and on. They think this is the theme for Trump to seize on. Do they want him to bring the hammer down, solve the problem and get credit for it? And they think that will win the election. That, uh, whether you go that far, it's, it should certainly be a winning theme for Trump that he is against the looting of the magnificent mile or whatever it's called in Chicago. Uh, and that he's against the incredible rise in murders in New York and in other cities, and that this is the product of democratic policies and democratic mayors and all these uh, bail laws that have been passed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he has a credible case to make, and he doesn't have to st- start like going crazy about Antifa. The, the problem with Trump is he always like is ham-handedly screws up a good cause. Like, he has a perfectly reasonable case about the stopping this initiative to move housing to the suburbs, okay? And instead, he, he you know, he does the Bush message, you know, I'm protecting you, suburban housewife. It's like, it's like way too blatant. But um, the problem he has is, is Jared and the people in the Jared camp, the, the, the Koch brothers crowd, they're, they're champions of, uh, prison reform and uh, they worry that if he seems too tough on crime it'll destroy their attempt to you know raise Trump's black vote from wait is that percent to nine percent is that true yeah, apparently it's true I mean I, I, I maybe I'm being deceived by my friend Ryan Jurdusky but it does seem that there there are you know the his initial response to the riots was tempered by Jared saying, oh, no, no, don't, this might cost us the black vote that I've so carefully nurtured. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, part of the, you know, the one of the big problems with the Trump campaign is Jared, uh, is, is, is it cross messages and other people like whoever talked to him into proposing a capital gains tax cut are cross messages with, with what a sensible policy would be. And of course, the main problem is Trump. But um, it would help if he had an advisor who had his ear who could say, no, no, this is the message. The message is law and order, populism, uh, anti-China, yes, uh, and let's stick with it. Well, I agree that uh, I can imagine the, the law and order issue playing in his favor. There was a conventional wisdom, which I think is still somewhat intact, that inherently civil unrest or uh, unrest generally – uh, works against the incumbent, an incumbent administration. And in fact, I think in that book, 10 Keys to the Presidency or whatever, which I think is a kind of a dubious analysis, but where they, they come up with these 10 boxes you check to determine who's, which candidate is going to win, the incumbent or the other one. I think civil unrest works inherently against the inc- incumbent. I've always thought that was too simple-minded, uh, that Trump may manage to blame, uh, Democrats. I think it's a wild card. Um, the, pre- the precedent is 92 when the riots worked against Bush and in favor of Clinton. And I, that doesn't, com- that, that situation doesn't completely resonate, uh, with, with me because, I mean, the law and order card did not work for Bush. He also played it ham-handedly, of course. And, um, but uh, there, I mean, there, it was the case that there were fundamental problem, economic problems of, the underclass and the ghetto and the inner cities that had gone unaddressed and people thought 
Bush, you haven't addressed them. You've been focusing on foreign policy. It's time to address them. Clint, we now made, we now have two decades of attempting to address these policies. And if we still have riots, I don't think people are going to say, now we really have to figure out what to do about the economy of the ghettos. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it, it's, it's a different situation. I think the law and order card has a shot. Well, I don't know that people assess it that way. I, I just think there's, uh, the, the optics have yet to really, uh, take final shape before the election. And it depends mm-hmm. on what specific Democratic mayors and police chiefs and, and Democratic appointed police chiefs do and stuff. But uh, I mean, that is how Clinton interpreted it. He gave a series of speeches saying that we have to deal with the culture of poverty that's sustained by welfare. Fine. I just don't think the voters. I don't and think many Jim, voters are looking at and, this that way. And Jim Pickerton was madly trying to get Bush to endorse a job program, which also would have addressed the, the problem, uh, and Bush didn't. So, I mean, it wasn't look, just me. Maybe no, it wasn't look, the voters. Look, my, my take on the George Floyd thing after a couple of weeks of protests, I, I wrote this in the non-zero newsletter, was um, basically, um, if you look at what the protesters are getting and even what they're demanding what good does it do the george floyds of tomorrow i mean what what good does it do the the kids who are being born in george floyd's shoes the shoes that led him to be where he was and uh i agree i mean uh i guess this sounds like a conservative thing to say it didn't used to be the case that if you wanted to spend a ton of money uh you know improving education and and jobs programs and all kinds of other things you were conservative but but now it's almost like if you say anything That's, other than police brutality is the problem, you are. We've reached we've reached our first get off my lawn moment. Yeah, I know. It's, that it's that ki- reminds it's, me. It's kids these days, Bob. They've abandoned the honest Marxism of our youth, where you address the economic problems and the cultural problems would solve themselves, and instead they're all cultural. Uh, they're all like, is this woke enough? Is, are we playing enough identity politics and ignoring? the fundamental economic realities, which are the primary drivers. Yeah, Matt Iglesias had a conversation on his podcast with John McWhorter, and Matt said, because John's a linguist, Matt said, uh, it kind of reminds him of the, you know, the, do you remember the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that you would get in, like, Psychology 101? The idea that language shapes the way you look at reality, so that if your language has seven different words for blue, you see these different shades of blue. I think it's been kind of largely discredited, but Matt's point was the idea seems almost to be that we can change the reality of the situation by using different words and prohibiting certain words. I mean, they were talking about cancel culture, right. so, right. uh, but, but, um, but there is, um, some of that, which, which also reminds me, Matt doesn't, Matt doesn't want the kids on his lawn either. Matt is getting, I'll tell you, Matt's aging faster than I am. I mean, uh, <laughs> he, uh, I mean, not all the, get, not, that's not true, of course. Uh, but, but he has, like, well, he signed the Harper's letter, which didn't shock me. I think it's great. I think it's fine. But, uh, but he was one of the most progressive seeming people who signed the Harper's letter and, like when I tweeted something about uh early on, as soon as the, the defunding the police thing started to take off, I said, man, this is a terrible messaging. This is a good way to get Trump elected is to start demanding defunding the police. And he chimed in on that, you know. Yeah. Um, but but let me – I had an epiphany while listening to that okay. conversation between my order and Matt. And it has to do 
the fact that you, you, people like us who are of the get off my lawn age have to come to terms with the fact that the meaning of some words are just changing. Uh, and it's interesting the way they're changing. So I'm thinking of the word racism. I mean, you and I, I think had already talked about the fact that clearly the meaning of white supremacy has changed. When right. we were young, it meant you, you were wearing a hood. Now right. it, it talks about institutions that just have ingrained these subtle things that kind of de facto wind up, uh, elevating whites. The, um, and racism, I finally realized, uh, is kind of, um, similar. And, and this started, I was listening to the Washington Post equivalent of the New York Times Daily podcast, which is different from it in interesting ways. Anyway, um, they were, uh, talking about this, how this loan, this emergency loan program in response to the pandemic had not done as much to help minority business owners as others. And, and, right. and, and, the reporter looked into it and said, basically, minorities, uh, minority business owners are saying, no, we don't want the loans. It's like, and that could be because they don't have strong relationships with banks. They don't have as much money, but they're saying we want grants, not loans. And, so, and that turns out to be the reason. And in fact, the legislation is written to give explicit preference to minority owned business. So here's what caught my attention was the way this reporter for the Washington Post wraps up. This is what she says. I think her name is Tracy Jane. And at first I was outraged by this, but then I listened to the McWhorter uh, Iglesias conversation and I'll explain why that lessened my outrage. So she says, in summary, the problems that the coronavirus is highlighting are systemic issues that have been happening in America for a very long time since the beginning of our country's history. So the coronavirus has only served to cast a spotlight on those very real issues of systemic racism. And this is just one of them. So a reporter was deeming a loan program racist when what had happened was minorities choose not, chose not to take advantage of it. So it's kind of just def- maybe de facto discriminatory. But then listening to Matt and John, I realized that the, 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 the meaning of racism has just changed. It's, it, and, and in a weird way, its impact has been weakened because now it applies to just de facto institutional discrimination, a little bit like white supremacy. And so it used to mean you are a bigot. It referred to a con- like an, an actual malicious attitude. And I think the well, irony... Well, go ahead. But wasn't she just saying that black businessmen are poorer and have less access to wealth than white businessmen? And that's a legacy of the history of African Americans, all of which is true and doesn't seem all that fresh and new or... No, or but woke. calling it... Well, two things. First of all... A reporter deeming anything racist gets back to the way – at first – see, at first I thought this was a comment on the way journalism has changed. Like, reporters didn't they use – well, no, You have to have a paragraph deeming it racist to get into the Washington okay, Post. Okay, but what, I, what I'm saying is it used to be reporters would never deem a person racist. They would let someone else say that and cite the facts about whatever someone had said. Now, right. I thought – at first I thought, now reporters label things racist, but then I realized – Actually, the meaning of the word has changed. And so what the reporter could be saying is there is de facto discrimination here. That's not an outrageous thing for a reporter. To, a reporter might have said that 30 years ago. And that's what the word racism is coming to mean in some context. That's my point. I guess that's right. But I mean, it's, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the ultimate end is that speaking English is racist because Eng- English is what helps the whole system function and the whole system is racist. So we should really stop 
talking to each other. I mean, it it becomes if you, you, this is mostly in that Andrew Sullivan essay. It's it, it it becomes just you can't do anything that's not racist because anything you do that helps the system, you're helping a system that's racist. Right. And so the ir- the irony is, I think with both white supremacists and racists, is the way the language starts to change is people want to use the want to expand the power of the terms, apply it more broadly. Like they want to say this university is white supremacist and they want and they when they first say that. They want it to have all the emotional power that the word white supremacist right. has. But then in the end, it winds up draining the terms of the emotional power they initially had. You see what um, I mean? Correct. I agree with that. And it's also a way to, to tell people like us, shut up, get out of the way. Right. So. But they can't tell us that because of the masses of people of goodwill who are supporting fiercely independent journalism. Like the paradigm. For example... No, no, don't reach for the parrot. You're reaching for the parrot? <laughs> Go ahead. Give them a treat, Mickey. <laughs> it's okay. No, I'll, we'll save the parrot. Uh, so that's that. Now, I don't know, COVID? Um, Foreign policy? Uh, well, we Leon? got a lot of stuff to Leon Weaseltier? No, Leon's, we're saving Leon for the parrot room. Entirely? I think. I, I, yeah, I mean, part of it's why, out in the people open. don't want to hear people don't want to hear Leon talked about twice. I, well, I think Man. the issue is interesting, though. I, I'm not going to get into it, but Leon Weaseltier, okay, go ahead, go ahead. Final, former literary editor of the New Republic. Full disclosure, my own personal nemesis um, is out of uh, out of Me Too jail. I guess, right? I mean, that's one interesting question is, is raised is. Is when is rehabilitation appropriate for various degrees of Me Too kind of miscreants? Um, anyway, he's going to see starting a quarterly. His first effort like that was derailed by the Me Too allegations um, when uh, Lorraine Powell Jobs, uh, who was going to bankroll him and basically owns the Atlantic, pulled out of the project. But he's found some other way to get a quarterly out. Uh, and we will, I guess, talk about that. So, I, I you um, know, somebody complained about us teasing too many things in the parrot room. They thought it was commercially crass or something. So forget um, everything we just said. We may not talk about the rest of no, this. No, we are not talking. Um, so you don't want to talk about Leon? Maybe in the parrot room? Maybe not. Um, well, I definitely want to talk about him at some point. Well, um, go ahead and say something, and then we may or may I not. Thought well, he didn't intimidate anybody, at least we we think, and it certainly was women? my experience. It's not like he's a boss who was pressuring women into having sex, and it's not like he was scaring them and using his power. He's a, he was a little well, creepy, apparently creepier as he got older. But his his um his explanation for how the Me Too movement has gone too far was really awfully good. It's sort of, and I'm reading from it, uh, what were the excesses? The Robespierre in haste with which people's heads were chopped off before they could say a word, the fact that the, an allegation was tantamount to a conviction, the fact that all infractions were treated equally, there was no sense of proportion or sense of measure, and that we developed a culture of unforgivingness. It's a pretty good summary of a lot of what went wrong with the Me Too movement. The, the, I would yeah, he's argue apparently that, being forgiven, right? He, this, I, this project well, of his is being written about semi-respectfully and respect 
acceptable place. Well, uh, yes, well, it should be, but he, and he's a pretty good candidate as the first rehab patient. But um, and of course, ign- also, the other problem with Me Too is it ignores Bob inherent differences between the sexes and the way men and women get ahead, and uh, I, it I gives no it gives no quarter to. The way women use their sexuality is sort of a way to compensate for other uh, discriminations they face, and that's just the way the world is. It's well, I, I agree down that on one side. I agree that a part of the story that wasn't written about is that there are women who um, who are happy to do the deal. There definitely are. At the same time, um, you know, I, I my view is. Uh, I I just didn't see any deals. Did you? I didn't see any deals being made at the New Republic. Anyway, well, the, I don't well, think that no, I don't think no, it was no, a deal that's, thing. That's not what's 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 scandalous. It's when women feel pressured who don't want to make a deal, right? And you, and, I and just you, don't think. I just think this is. We're not talking about Leon's case. We're talking about like we're not even talking about the CEO of McDonald's who's. Idea of having sex with his subordinates was a fa- one FaceTime encounter. He's still getting fired and sued. Okay, but some of these uh, but, people were. Look, there was a huge power differential. Some of these women probably worked direct, directly for Leon. They definitely felt uncomfortable. I mean, there's one, I mean, um, you know, Sarah case, Wildman, who's somebody I know a little, and 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 I'm sure she's that's different. Me. That's di- well, that's you, you, no, but the whole point of Me Too is is we're going to be more sensitive on that front. No, I and, agree with all that. The, the well, question okay, is, then men are going to have to pay the price. The question is, but we're saying there were women who would do the deal, and I'm saying there were no women in that case who were willing to do the deal. I don't know any women. But who Mickey, got the ahead whole point the is, when women are willing to do the deal, that's not the biggest scandal. It's women who don't want any part of it who steal. Right, no, I agree with that. Price. I agree with that. Let me give you just quickly one example. Sarah Wildman testified that, like, she's talking to Leon, and he like lunges at her, mm-hmm. and then. And then when she rebuffs him, he says, "Oh, I knew you'd do that," or something. Well, that's look, that's not that's not cool. It was in I'm the not office. Saying it's cool, we're talking about a different thing. I'm talking about we're talking about women who want to do the deal, and I'm saying that is not the case at the New Republic. Forget the New Republic; that didn't happen there. Okay, you are totally missing my point. Kamala Mickey. Harris. There's a much stronger case that she did the deal than that anybody at the New Republic did the deal. I'm going to say this one more time. I agree that who's at the door. That's the phone. I agree that that that's the phone. I agree that part of the story that was not written about for ideological reasons, because they wanted it to be a clear, more clear-cut case of men being evil and women not, was that some women are willing to do the deal. Right. And, 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 fine, but 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 that's the part that isn't so. Uh, Egregious, and that's the part that doesn't need changing. I mean, that's up to two two consenting parties. The part that does need changing are the women who didn't want to be lunged at. That happened at the I New think, Republic. I'm, I not, I agree a hundred percent with that. But the the problem with that is that there are a lot of women who want to do the deal and who d- did the deal and tried to do the deal, and then the guys that wanted to do the deal have now been canceled and. Me too, and their careers are over. Oh, and well. the question is, so they, they, it doesn't bifurcate as neatly as you think. There are people who want to do the deal and then turn on their accuser. There are people who wanted to do the deal and are happy, right. and somebody else accuses the man or woman and whoever it is, 
And uh, so it's it's, it's okay. an acknowledgement that there are people who want to do the deal would change the way the whole thing is dealt with. Right. But by that analysis, if your goal is to exonerate Leon, you should be saying there were women there who wanted to do the deal. But no. by your own account, there weren't. My goal is... My goal is not to deal. I mean, he actually did marry one my, of them. So the, my goal but, is not to do the deal. I don't think she wanted to do the deal either. And, no, I'm not saying and, she and, did, but she, and, was, and, she was an intern originally. And and I'm just saying the New <laughs> Sorry, Republic that is was just par- a, that was forget, paragraph, that was paragraph forget, material. Let's forget the New Republic case. I'm saying that, uh, of course, harassing people who don't want to do the deal is bad. But the Me Too movement doesn't acknowledge what you just acknowledged enough, okay. which is people who are willing to do the deal. And that is sort of, I mean, that is the way the world has worked. Mm-hmm. It may be the way the world shouldn't work. Tell it to Kamala Harris. And, uh, and, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not completely clear what will replace that deal. Uh, and I, but I'm willing to give it a try. We should get rid of that deal. But, um, just some acknowledgement that there are women who took advantage of it and they're, they're sort of uncomfortable with the Me Tooism too. Yeah. Because they've used that to their advantage their whole lives. Yeah. So that, but that, I'm not talking clear, about the New Republic. Not be, talking okay. about the New Republic. No, you did, you did talk about Kamala Harris. I mean, this has been written about a little, but. Uh, but, but first let me say, um, so my position is just, it, there is a sense in which it's unfair the way some of these guys were punished because back when they started out, and even in some cases back when they did everything they're being accused of, the rules were different. Um, at the same time, they were considered kind of creepy then, and in any event, sometimes the way you have to make it clear that the rules are changing is you punish some people right. in, a, in a way that might not be fair in every sense of the term. Tough luck. You I mean, punched. I I hit on the interns at the New Republic too. Luckily, I had no power. Yeah, so, I know. Well, that was the key uh, to your that was the key to your lack of success. That's the key to my lack of being me too. <laughs> okay, uh, sorry. Hey, didn't mean to offend you. Um. Um. Uh. So. Um. But. Um. Anyway. See, this was a paradigm discussion, Bob. I was right. Well, it ain't over yet, buddy. You, you, okay. You, you, <laughs> There's more, um, there's more, we, we can we can, what what I can say in the pair room is people are wondering why is Leon your nemesis, Bob? Well, there's an answer. Yeah, to that do question. the sex in public and then do, do the, the sex the, in public and Bob's Darwinism in private. The Darwinism in private that'll that'll go over big. Actually, some some person, either a patron or otherwise, suggested we have some kind of grievance feature, and I'm totally in for that. You mean we just like where we whine? Yeah, just that's, whining. That's, that's what we do all the time, anyway. <laughs> um, so, I, I have one. I, I have one. One thing about um, China, which is I don't understand why people don't. If you're Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, you don't make a big deal of this Celine business. Celine is, you know, I'm an auto nut, and Celine is a famous electric, electric car. Ford, no, he's a four. He, no, it's it's not electric. He's a He's a, basically a Ford Mustang tinkerer, mm. and he adds turbochargers to Mustangs and makes them incredibly fast. And uh, and and he also built his own cars, his own like fancy race cars. And and he 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 got a um, a deal to build a factory in China to build four cars of his own design, and they set up a factory with robots. And uh, 
And now the Chinese have, according to him, uh, basically exp- who were minority owners, I think, but they had a big chunk, the local municipality. They've, they've expropriated all his property. They've taken all his patents. They've applied for patents for his ideas. They've cut him out of the factory. It's not his anymore. They've basically screwed him and said, go away. It's ours now, using the COVID virus as an excuse. And this seems like a perfect, if true, it's a perfect example of the sort of behavior that we don't like of the of the Chinese. It also has implications for Tesla, which has an even bigger factory in mm-hmm. China that is subject to this. Now, I got I got I got two kinds of feedback uh, on my, on my Twitter feed to this. Like, I don't know why Bannon hasn't made a big deal of this. I mean, if if Trump if Trump is tweeting ridiculous things about Kamala, why why doesn't he tweet a ridiculous thing about Celine? A, people said, well, screw Celine. He was greedy. He tried to make cars in China, uh, you know, not America. Well, that's a little unfair because he was trying to sell the cars in China. So it seems to me there's a big difference between making cars in China and selling them here and making cars in China to sell to China. And yeah. you're allowed to do that. And B, uh, a lot of people said, uh, well, Celine has a shady reputation. There has to be another side to this story. So I accept that possibility that there's another side of the story and that everybody's checked it out and what Celine says isn't true. But I would like to know the other side of the story. There are people in the auto industry who have terrible reputations like Fisker. The, you know, the, there was a car called the Fisker and it was competing against the Tesla and everybody said the Fisker isn't going to make it because Fisker's, you can't believe anything he says. Uh, I, I thought the Fisker was a journalist named Fisk. Remember that when his last name became a verb? Right, he fisked. fisked. His name was Fisk, then he fisked, so he was a Fisker. He was but a there Fisker is a guy, but... there is a guy named Fisker who would design some of the most beautiful modern cars ever, and tried to build an electric car, and his company failed. It's well, it sounds like the, it's now called the Karma, it's still being produced. Ooh, uh, sounds like Trump should jump on this Celine thing. I mean, it does sound like it's tailor made uh, to, to be this like yeah, potent little anecdotal case. It wins. You know, the entire Ford versus Ferrari fan base over and so right. on. Um, exactly. I have another thing that I'm surprised Trump hasn't exploited, which would be a transition to COVID. Unless you want to talk China more. By the way, I had a China I, piece in the Non-Zero newsletter this week, available at nonzero.org, about the TikTok thing and how uh, TikTok illustrates the irony that although Trump purports to want to weaken uh, authoritarianism in China, everything he does strengthens uh, the devotion of the Chinese people to the uh, authoritarian leadership. It's, it's, uh, it's all about co- cognitive empathy. <laughs> that's my that's my patron bird. Now, now that now that it is said so, cognitive empathy, some people have patron saints. I have a patron bird. Patron being a double entendre, uh, Mickey. There you go. Um, I I have something. They sort of in between what Trump should be doing and COVID, which is in the COVID emergency. Why isn't he showering people with cash? That's a proven way for autocrats like Bolsonaro well, in Brazil. He is. No, he isn't. He cut the benefit from 600 to 200. Oh, those people. He, 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 he should be, he should be giving everybody yeah. instead of, he should have endorsed Kamala Harris's plan to give $2,400 checks instead of $1,200 checks. He should be giving $5,000 checks. Bolsonaro is doing it in Brazil. It's working for him. People are grateful to get the checks. You can buy votes with money. You can't buy all the votes, but you can buy a lot of votes. 
We and agree. why isn't he trying to do it? It's all it, it's bizarre to me. He's not behaving like an autocrat. Do you know why my face is so luminous, Mickey? Plastic surgery? <laughs> I don't know. Doesn't it look weird though? Uh, it does. I don't know why. Huh. Well, uh, it's not a good look. Um, yeah. Well, it's fine. Well, it looks like I, I, we've talked about this. I agree. It's a puzzle. I mean, especially now that apparently the reigning economic philosophy of all Americans is the government can just magically create money and it'll never be a problem. But, uh, but the, um, you know, what he has done, this is a transition to my thing is, of course, he showered these drug companies that have promising vaccines with enough money that they're going to play ball with him and he's going to do a little, October surprise that I think is going to be eerily parallel to the Putin surprise. Okay. You know, this Putin vaccine, you've heard about the Putin vaccine. Yeah, no, huh? you're completely right. That's totally going to happen. And, and it's going to be like Putin. He's going to say, I, I have an announcement. We now have enough results in that I can, through emergency decree, authorize this for certain key personnel, medical personnel, blah, blah, blah. It's going to happen. If it doesn't happen, I'm retiring from the punditry business and I will return no, I won't return the, the Patreon money. But it's I pretty the, the, the problem is, I think it's going to happen two or three times before the election. I think he's going to he's going to do it prematurely, and people are going to see through it. And he's going to try it again, and he's going to try it again. Uh, but, it, it's completely obvious that that's what I'll try. It's, it's a it's a standard political ploy. Remember, Jimmy Carter proclaimed peace with Iran at one point before a key primary with Edward Kennedy. Uh, it's it's a desperate it's a standard desperation move. Well, that brings us to Israel and UAE. But before we talk about that, let me just say, I'm surprised that Trump has not a big made a big deal of challenge trials. Remember those? The idea that you can get a vaccine tested much faster if you just take a relatively small group of people and uh, divide them into two groups, vaccine, no vaccine, and then expose them all to the virus. Right. Make sure they right. get exposed and sit around for three right. weeks and you're done. See, yeah. I think that's what I'm on Team Putin because I'm pretty sure that's what he did in Russia. I'm not vouching for this vaccine. I think Putin would uh, would perhaps not be as cautious as I meet, might be. But apparently only I read in Science Magazine only 79 people were involved in testing this. So that has to be a challenge trial if that's true. Right. And 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 the fact is 79 people, if you get super clear cut results like all of the people vaccinated don't get it, and 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 none and uh, right. all the people who aren't vaccinated do get it. You have a quite high degree of confidence that the thing works, and that's what he may have done. And it's a. I won't go into this. Maybe uh, parrot room permitting, I'll, I'll do it there. But 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 I, I, I there, there's a thought. There's a, there's a way that the famous trolley thought experiment applies to to this, and I think kind of helps illustrate or explain why people are, in my view, just almost uni uniformly rejecting without any valid ethical grounds something that would save a lot of lives. Right. Okay. Um. Uh, quickly, the other thing is, on hydroxychloroquine, there is now a guy attached to a reputable institution, this guy Rish at Yale Public Health School, right? who's all in for it. He's like, what does he argue? Does he argue you have to give it early also? You have to give it early and you should only give it to people who are in danger. Of, the people who are most in danger of dying, older, pre pre-existing condition. Uh, he, he's now a, an intermittent guest on the Bannon podcast. It was very frustrating listening to it because 
He's made this claim. He said every test has shown it works. Well, wait a second. We've all seen carefully controlled tests that seem to show it didn't. But the thing about the people on the Bannon podcast is they're so used to just asserting things without any evidence. They're so used to just preaching to people who have drunk the Kool-Aid that they don't ask him to, like, clarify and tell us, like, right. why it is that some studies seem right. to show X. Right. Is he's asserting Y. It's incredibly frustrating. It's a general um, problem. Um, well, it's true that the media... I mean, I'm telling you, this could this. There's a chance that this could be, in retrospect, uh, a mind-blowing fail on the part of the media if it turns out that this drug works. Um, the um, did you want to talk about the UAE deal? Oh, quickly. I mean, I, 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 I you know, you don't. I have a, I have a quote from Leon, a paraphrase of a quote from Leon Wieseltier that's appropriate. The, the, rehabilita- the rehabilitation of Jared Kushner is a heavy price to pay for peace in the Middle East. Did he say that? No, he said the rehabilitation of Richard Holbrook was a heavy price for avoiding genocide in Bosnia. Yeah, well, this, of course, it, it, this it, of course... It applies to this case as well. Well, one, no, it, it doesn't because this doesn't bring peace to the Middle East. It doesn't change the game. Well, there are people who think... It's a so joke. Ch- yeah, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I get pretty emotional about the Middle East. The... um. Just quickly, it may be important. I mean, it, it, it's new and seemingly significant for an Arab state, uh, aside from Jordan and Egypt, to recognize Israel. Um, and I guess both of them have actually recognized it as opposed to maybe signing treaties without recognizing. Anyway, but as somebody put it on Twitter, um, I even wrote it down. Someone named Khalid El-Gendi, E-L-G-I-N-D-Y. In practical terms, there's very very little different. What was de facto normalization is now de jour. In other words, they were already de facto allies, UAE and Israel, against Iran. And what was going to be de jour annexation is still de facto. And that's true, too. I mean, Israel basically, uh, it ain't given back the part that it was going to annex ever, ever, ever. And someday it will probably annex it. Um, Tom Friedman just went, uh, huh just almost had an orgasm on the pages of the New York Times praising the thing. Um, and I, I've, I don't know if he's changed or if I'm only slowly coming to realize kind of how far right he's been on Israel. I, I, I think, I think I, I've come to realize that the New York Times itself as an institution is more right wing on this than I had appreciated, both in the news pages and in the, uh, opinions. Does section. this do anything to solve Israel's long term problem of, at some point, they'll be outvoted by the Arab population. No, no, it doesn't. Um, well, what, I mean, maybe they could. I don't know. Maybe it makes some solutions I, I, easier, like I mean, like here, lopping off part, putting all the Arabs in one part of Israel, and saying, "Okay, this isn't Israel anymore." No, can't say that. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, that would be a variant of a two-state solution, I guess. But no, there's, there's no. It's too late for a two-state solution. As I told John Kerry in 2010, by the way. He called you, know you up? No, I found myself sitting to him next uh, on an airplane right after I came back from Israel on a left-wing tour of Israel run by uh, Matt Duss, uh, who became Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor, and uh, Michelle Goldberg was there. But anyway, the... um. He didn't Did he listen. Take your advice. He, no. he spent a lot of his, he spent a lot of time trying to get a two state solution. But um, wait, just quickly. So 
this is, I mean, it's kind of amazing. So, BB threatens to do something illegal, annex the thing. I mean, the occupation is itself illegal. It violates the Geneva, um, the Geneva, uh, convention, but, um, but he threatens to do this illegal thing. And then UAE says, if you don't do the, the illegal thing you were threatening to do, we'll give you this thing. And then they get praised for it. It's like, it's worse than, than saying to somebody who takes a hostage, if you don't kill them, we'll give you a million dollars. Because in this case, he, you knew he wasn't going to kill the hostage. BB, it had become politically infeasible for him to, uh, to do the, the annexation for a variety of reasons. And not just because Trump had gotten cold feet. It isn't just that. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of weird, but read Tom Friedman if you want to be convinced that it's a huge deal. It, it, I, I haven't read very much about it. Is there any evidence that Jared's initiatives paid off at all? Well, that's, that's just, the Tom Friedman case. He, he mentions Jared? Tom, oh, totally. He says, Jared uh, created an asset out of thin air, uh, you know, a negotiating asset. Uh, it was, uh, it, it's a, it's a... Uh, I mean, I don't know if he—he's Tom's playing footsie with Jared. I don't know why. I don't know if he's getting going to get great information or scoops in yeah. return or what. Well, that that is that is one reason people play footsie with Jared. Jared, um, it you know Jared is advised by people. It's possible he lucked into some progress. Well, I do think he yeah. made he made uh, lemonade out of a lemon in a way. I mean, like I said, his immigration plan was good too. I mean, there's a. The, I, I, he, he would have probably accepted if it was bad, but it actually happened to be yeah. good by accident. So, you know, it's just, a, rule it, I, mean, out. I guess what kills me is like, Jared was going to bring peace in the sense of Israel and the Palestinians. And this makes that only more remote. Yeah. In my view, I, I, I could get into that, but th- that's you, the irony. And Tom doesn't even get into that. It's like he doesn't even, he, he shows no sign of caring anymore. Uh, about the Palestinians, no real you, sign. You know what? Uh, what my crazy take is my take so crazy that it destroys my reputation as a serious person. Ah, <laughs> that wouldn't have to be that crazy. What is it? <laughs> Epstein. Oh, sure. This where's isn't the Epstein, Where's the Epstein angle? <laughs> On the UAE normalizing well, relations with well, Israel. It, it, there's a lot of evidence that he was living in the Middle East. Uh, his plane came back from that area when he landed and was arrested. There, some people say he was living in Saudi Arabia or UAE or someplace around there. He had a picture of MBS on his wall. And he was a, let's assume the, the paranoia, he was also in cahoots with the Mossad. So he was sort of an early living embodiment of the de facto uh, alliance between the Gulf Arab Sunni states and Israel. Uh, and, you know, for all we know, maybe he egged it on a little. He should get the Nobel Peace Prize, Bob. Um, Jeffrey Epstein, that is a, that is a take, <laughs> nobody. That's a slate pitch. I own that take. <laughs> That's a, you, and, for, and it will be yours alone forever. Um... It's not really my take. I'm just suggesting it is. Is, is there any Ghislaine news? Uh, 
There was some Ghislaine news. She's been taken off suicide watch, and there's an article on how she survives in prison that I haven't read. Okay. Um, I have a, I have a get off my lawn take on the post office. I mean, before, before you say, uh, let me set the stage for you saying get off your your lawn. Okay. It was some commenter a couple of weeks ago said. Toward the end, we had morphed from the odd couple to grumpy old men. There's that. Although I think in grumpy old men, uh, Tony Randall was not in grumpy old men, right? So that doesn't refer to me. I think that's, that's, that, that maybe, maybe she meant you. But the other thing is, um, you know, in the, uh, in the, in the sweepstakes to come up with the most appropriate analogy to you and me, um, somebody mentioned, who is it? Uh, Waldorf and Statler or something? you know who they are? No. I think they're grumpy, cantankerous Muppets. Okay, so that's it. Go ahead. Here's a question. Are we recording this? I'm not seeing any clock. Dude, don't scare me. Um, Yeah, we're recording it. Okay, good. Um, I mean, whether uh, you're recording your thing, I don't know, but that's not quite important if you're not. Yeah. As always, I'm epiphenomenal. Um, my millennial take on the post office is I was talking to a postman who said, the, it, it, well, first, you never hear what, you never hear the, the side of this new postmaster he's put in. Like, what's he trying to do? Presumably, he's doing, trying to do more than just screw up the election. He also wants to somehow make the post office more efficient. And, you know, he is a businessman with some, experience and track record of success, the press never reports what he's actually trying to do. He cut back on overtime. He killed, he said, no more overtime. Overtime is what they used to actually get the mail delivered. So uh, as a result, the mail is piling up and being delayed. This postman I talked to said, the problem is millennials don't show up at work. They figured out how to game the system, calling in sick, blah, blah, blah. And then people like him, who's not a millennial, uh, get called in on overtime to actually get the mail delivered. And now this millennial disease has infected the whole post office. So basically, nobody's showing up at work, and all the work is done on overtime. And so that's what this guy was fighting. He was trying to get people to show up for work and not uh, not rely on constant, expensive overtime to get the work done. And not a crazy thing to do. So... Yeah. Um, uh, that's well, the any, any millennial take on the post office. Well, yeah, that's that's good uh, millennial bashing. The the um, I mean, it's true. I think that there's very limited power to discipline subordinates in the post office. I knew a guy who was running the post office in a particular town. It's like their kid was a playmate of our kid, and he caught a guy who worked at the post office opening letters and reading them. Because they came from his ex-wife or something, opening letters and reading them, and he couldn't fire him. Huh. Um, so it's not easy to dis. Those millennials know know when they've got the upper hand and they've got it. <laughs> right. Um, Wiley. And I also have a take on Trump's executive order. I know you were waiting for that. Which ones? Not TikTok. Later than that. No, the four he. The COVID talks broke down, 
And Trump said, that's okay. I can oh. do it oh, all oh, through executive money, yeah. orders. Okay, yeah. And Getting the, money to know, Americans, the, right. The, the two big ones are he delayed the payroll tax and he uh, says he's going to send $300 to unemployed people instead of 600 and the states are going to he hopes make up a, add a hundred dollars to that so it'll be four hundred dollars um I, I you know this is all a dangerous i think all both those things are completely constitutionally questionable and it's all it's all the outgrowth of this disastrous justice robert decision in the daca case where he basically said look what you did was illegal, but it created facts on the ground and reliance interests. And so you can't just overturn an illegal executive act. You have to jump through all these ridiculous hoops. And um, and what's more, it's like the Roche Motel. We may let you get the regulation in, but then you can't get the regulation out. So uh, uh, and, and Trump sort of took this to heart under the advice of Berkeley law professor John Yu and said, hey, I'm going to have my roaches in the Roche Motel. I'm going to uh, issue a lot of regulations and let my successor try to undo them, huh? Uh, so the way this is going to play out in theory is he, he has this re- regulation giving an extra $300 or delaying the payroll tax, which is a big problem for business because do they really not collect the payroll tax? And if they collect the payroll tax and it's deferred, what do they do with the money? They just put it in like some bank account? Waiting for like a future, you know, aren't they going to be sued about that? I mean, it's all, it's a huge hornet's nest. So somebody's going to sue and say this is all unconstitutional, which I think it should be. I think the court should, somebody should be able to say, look, you're not carrying out the statute. It's, you're the president, you're supposed to carry out the damn statute. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the conventional wisdom is that A, it's an unpopular lawsuit to bring. So the Democrats aren't going to bring it because they're going to try, are they really going to try to take away $300 that Trump is sending to people? And B, that Justice Roberts, they'll find some judge, some anti-Trump judge to enjoin it and say, sorry, I've stopped this program. You can't go on with this program. And then it gets taken up to the Supreme Court. And the conventional wisdom is Justice Robert will get rid of the injunction because Justice Robert, it would be consistent with his earlier opinion, which is to let the bogus regulation stand. And according to Josh Blackman, uh, who I got this theory from, Roberts has a bias for preserving the status quo. So Justice Roberts is going to vaporize the anti-Trump injunction and the people are going to get their $300. And, you know, that we'll be, we'll be further down the road of the John U change in the Constitution, which is instead of Congress legislating and the president executing, the president will be doing the legislating. Uh, uh, I think. No, that's not going to happen. Roberts is going to vaporize the injunction. No, he's going to uphold the injunction. Sorry, he's going to uphold the injunction and and stop Trump's actions because I think he realizes he's created a monster and you need to kill the monster right now before it upends the entire Constitution. Roberts, so I think Roberts does. Roberts does, yeah. And so Roberts will say, look, that was just a one-time thing for the DACA people. Forget it, Trump. This is unconstitutional. You're over-asserting your executive authority. Uh, and, and we can talk about it next term, but in the meantime, the injunction stands. So that's a, that's a weird Mickey prediction that I've been wrong before that Roberts is going to let a court enjoin Trump's executive actions. 
Well, I think Roberts is also very reluctant to let the court seem indulgent of Trump generally, leaving aside the constitutional issues. I, I think, um, like he's who I'm counting on if there's, if there's any kind of close call about the election itself. Um, and, and he's shown that. I mean, he spoke out publicly against Trump. Uh, maybe I forget if it was text or subtext, but it was totally clear. That- no, that, that's a fact. I mean, sometimes he has let Trump get away with things like building the wall and like, uh, the travel ban. So he, he's sort of the unacknowledged legislature, legislator yeah. of America. Uh, I mean, but he's not entirely pro-Trump. I agree. What, what I don't get about the, the difficulty Congress is happening, having in reaching some kind of deal on relief for the American people is, you know, we think of the Democrats and Republicans as playing a zero-sum game because there's only two parties. But actually, there are times when incumbents generally are playing a non-zero-sum game because people get pissed off enough. They'll vote all the incumbents out of office. So Democrats and Republicans uh, in, in, in Congress sometimes have common cause. I would think this might be one of them. But no, I, think they, I think if you vote all the rep- incumbents out, the Democrats win big. They win the White House and the Senate. So, well, yeah, but the individual Democrats, well, no, but by definition. Well, there's five of them. Well, actually, if you literally vote all the incumbents out, then the Senate becomes Democrat and the House becomes Republican. Right, okay, that's but, not going to happen. But that's not going to happen. That's not my point. My point is I would think that there would be a large number of people in both parties who are worried about blowback from just not reaching any kind of deal. That, I that's, think there are some, but uh, in general, I, I this is incredibly crude. I think the Democrats are happy if people are pissed off and really? the COVID rages and the economy's in the tank. And they think that's every, everything everything around us in all of society is directed to one end, Bob, and that is getting rid of Trump. And they think that is the most uh, propitious atmosphere but, but it, to get rid of Trump. And so they, if they were, if it were a normal year and he were a normal president, they would have cut a deal, but, uh, they're happy to have, basically have a certain amount of suffering if it's, serves the greater good of getting rid of Trump. You're I so do think cynical. That's true. You're so cynical, but I do think that's true. But it seems like you fairly often see the headline, Democrats reject deal. Right. I mean, don't you more often see that than you see Republicans reject deal? I would think that yeah. for Nancy Pelosi, that's a bad headline. You would think and you think Trump could drive that home, but he seems incapable of doing it. He's spending uh, all his time of his for his big on his big challenge trials speech. Uh, he he can he knows the challenge trials speech by heart because he just blow, he just he doesn't stick to the facts. He'll say we have a vaccine. It all works. The COVID's going to go away. Vote for me. That's basically the speech. There's a, I'm telling um, you, there's a lot of wild cards yet to come in this campaign. And um, I, here's just quickly back to Kamala. Like, is there a danger of her? She seems pretty young and vibrant. In fact, younger and more vibrant than than probably the average 55 year old. But um, is there a danger of her making Biden look particularly old and? Not yes, especially. although I think I think uh, the Biden people are well aware of that, and and I think she's been instructed not to do that. The, she can be very effective if she sticks to her script. She was very effective at the introduction. She made the lawyerly case against Trump. She could be nastier than Biden uh, without 
seeming to be completely nasty herself. And if she sticks to the things that are written for her, she will be very effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, but the problem is she's, and it, you know, she's Eve Harrington. She's an ambitious person who, uh, eventually it will come out that, uh, she wants to be president really, really badly and doesn't want to wait around until Biden gives her the signal. And, uh, and oh. the sooner that comes out, the worse it is for her. And also, I just don't think she's that appealing. It's not a question of making Biden look bad. That might happen. But why Why do we have to have presidential candidates who can dance? Uh, and I, it, it, Maybe this is another get-off-my-lawn moment. But Inauguration. Inauguration bowl. All, all on the fucking Ellen show now? I mean, we all have – candidates have to be able to dance to be president? I mean, all the videos of Kamala dancing – didn't do any good in the primaries, and those were Democrats. Okay, uh, I just, I, I, I just think there's a huge possibility that the dogs won't like the dog food, as they say. And um, wait, who are the dogs in this metaphor? You know, it's Com- a standard, a standard old chestnut about the advertising industry about how we, I don't understand. We advertise this dog food with a five million dollar campaign. We got all the influencers on board. You know, why is this dog food failing? And the answer is, the dogs don't like it, okay? <laughs> Do you remember when Ed so, McMahon uh, on, on the Johnny Carson show used to actually feed Alpo to dogs live? No. Once Not once when they age. wouldn't eat it, he had to get down and demonstrate, and then the dog <laughs> and then the dog ate it. He probably had some secret pheromone on his fingers. Um, the, uh, it's, um, so... I mean, that, that would be my main worry about Biden, but that's easily solved. That you downplay Kamala and you send her on the, the less, uh, less, you know, big venues. That's what they did with uh-huh. Dan Quayle. So she's not going to kill him. It's just she's a bad choice, maybe for his, you know, there are other choices who would have helped him more. And she's going to be a problem if they win in terms of dealing with her in the White House. Yeah. I, oh, I, mean, I don't know about that. Jeez. I mean, Biden really served the purpose in the Obama administration. He was the guy who could go it's, to the it's, Senate and sell the deal. It's Kamala not, is not the guy who's... Tom, uh, is, is Biden really going to value Kamala's advice? No. Her, her, her track record of judgment is awful. Look, it's not in her interest to undermine his presidency unless it starts lo- looking after year two like he's going to try to become a two-term president, which I kind of doubt. Other than that, I mean, she's fine being a good soldier because she's the heir apparent. She doesn't need to cause trouble. You may be right. Well, on that note, Mickey. There's a poem, there's a poem called The Snake that Trump would read (laughs) about how sometimes people overcomes their rationality and they do things that are destructive that cause their own demise because they're snake-like. I'm not sure that was the. Wasn't this more about not recognizing a peril, an, an, an evident peril? God, he the, he recited thought, that at every rally in 2016. Well, there's a version of the snake about a scorpion who stabs somebody in mid-river, and they both die, but the scorpion oh. can't help it because the scorpion's a scorpion. Man, this guy's got to go. I'm not going to ask you, Mickey. I'm going to charitably not ask you if you're still thinking about voting for him. I'm not going to ask you. The question's not on the table. You don't have to answer it. As you know, my main thing is I want him to get close enough to preserve the Senate Republican. So you want him to lose by a few votes? By, like, five votes. So then it will be a disaster for the country. He has to lose by barely enough 
this probably is a null set. He has to lose by enough so that there's not a, con- a prolonged contest, but not enough to lose the Senate for the Republican. Okay, so we should probably start winding it down. After all, we have a whole Parrot Room episode. Well, I, I've gone take. through my my suggested yeah. topics, but how long have we been going on? I can't see. Uh, almost an hour and 15. Okay, well. But let me say a couple of things quickly. One is, I did do, as I think I said last time, this live stream, my first ever YouTube live stream, about cognitive empathy. Uh, this was in memory of Michael Brooks, the kind of leftist, uh, young, young lefty host of the Michael Brooks show. Um, and he passed away unexpectedly because of a blood clot, it turns out, uh, three weeks ago. Um, this, this Dude. grew out of that because I was scheduled to be on his show. I was going to talk about cognitive empathy. It wound up being the case that his mother joined us. So it was really, it was really, that's the interesting part is the last 45 minutes. Anyway, that's on YouTube if you want, under the, on the Meaning of Life channel if you want to watch it. It's, and then I'm doing another live stream this Thursday at eight with Josh Summers, who was, who was also on board that time. And we're going to get more deeply into the whole question of, um, cognitive empathy, mindfulness. Uh, it, it applies to foreign policy and domestic politics and stuff. So, uh, you can look at my Twitter feed at Robert Ryder, uh, on Thursday if you want to see details about where, what you click on to see that. That's my self promotion. Do you have self promotion, Mickey? No, that's my problem. We should do some, a little, uh, Patreon talk quickly. I mean, well, we have this Patreon where we, we sort of like the after party where we talk about whether the show went well. And I think it's a danger. It, it's a danger of people who see a free show feeling shortchanged because all the good stuff is in the parrot room. Isn't that I, exactly I, what we want, Mickey? No. <laughs> no. Because then we're shits. Um, I think... You know, um, most of America's successful people are shits. Okay. Um, my... Uh, we're not looking for a whole lot of success. We don't have to be Joe no. Rogan here. <clears throat> no, no. Um, the... Uh, but... Um, so, so I don't want to hit the, the, the parrot room is, 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 I thought it was a good balance last week of stuff that was interesting, but not, uh, you know, it didn't steal from the regular. Well, let me, blog, let me, right uh, show uh, a countervailing view is this, uh, from patron Mark. I have to unlearn the lesson of Chekhov's gun. I guess, you know, Chekhov said, if you see a gun in the first act, it'll go off in the last act right. or something. He, and then he says, the Lady Gaga sex doll did not make an appearance in the parrot room. Apparently, we alluded to that. Can we promise to talk about that? Do you have it there? Do you have a Lady Gaga sex it's doll? Like, it's Don't like bring it on now. Don't, it's, no, 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 no. it's parrot room material. It's somewhere in the pile of crap that's to my left here. We take a break in between this and the parrot I, room. Okay. If you insist on the Lady Gaga sex doll, I'll find it. But will, I it wonder time, find. will it take time to inflate it or is it inflated? It's tiny. It's like the parrot is as big as Mickey, the lady. Mickey, don't so. give away too much. <laughs> anyway, I may not find it, but I'll try. Let me quickly say a couple of things. One is I was wrong, and I'll explain, I'll elaborate in the parrot room, but I was wrong to say that you can't get the parrot room thing in a podcast app. You can. There's a way we can send you a secret link. And so I'll elaborate on that. 
in the Parrot Room. You can get it on most podcast apps. There's, there's various ways you can you can if you want to just listen to the Parrot Room, do it more conveniently than you may be aware of. Um, I should also say, you know, last time I said, you know, we don't have a multi-tier system. It's just like five dollars a month, and that's true. We don't. Uh, I I should emphasize that you're allowed to give us more money if you want. And in fact, uh, I was gratified to see that without us even mentioning that, some people did give more than five dollars. There, there were, uh, and that's very generous. But um, I would just, uh, I would say there's no ceiling on the generosity that people are allowed to display in my presence, as a rule. <laughs> Um, but, but really, uh, seriously, thank you to everybody. It's, it's, um, I mean, uh, it's, it's heartening. And, uh, and I guess now on to the parrot room. It's a big deal if you can make, if you can survive as an independent non MSM. Totally. Because the MSM has gone so crazy. Oh man, it's uh, bad. It, you it would, really you would exp- you would want this to happen. So thank you. No, yes. plus I keep I saying more and more things that poison the well. Even in this, let alone the parrot room. I mean, I've already antagonized several people uh, today. I, the, I uh, actually I actually have a guaranteed cancel Mickey point to make. Which oh, I will also make. in the parrot room. I will also make in the parrot room. But you're going to sl- you're going to slap me down so quickly. Cancel Mickey. I'm writing it down so you don't forget. Great tease. So, um, the, the URL is patreon.com slash parrot room, one word. And, uh, so we will see patrons there, but you know, we remain grateful to everyone who watches us or listens to us, whether or not they're patrons. We love everyone, don't we? Yeah. I think it's, well, oh, we speaking of which, final love thing. This from a patron. Liz says, love you, Bob, three exclamation points. I am a huge fan, and Mickey is growing on me. Mickey, there are a number of warning signs that you've been spending too much time in the parrot room, and that may be one of them. You're growing on her. Mickey is growing on me. Mickey is growing on me. <laughs> and, um, that was, and, and that you get for free. Imagine what you have to pay, what, what you get if you pay. That was, thank you, Mickey. This poor parrot. Okay. Okay. So we'll see you in the parrot room. Great. Okay.